welcome back to the Poplar Tapes. Uh, my name is Keegan Irish, and we've been on a bit of a hiatus for the summer just due to uh, busy work lives and complex schedules, but uh, you know, we're back now and we're hoping to have some bright things on the horizon for you. So, uh, in this particular episode, uh, this is really kind of aimed at our Canadian friends and comrades. We're going to be talking about the forthcoming Canadian federal election. And so I'm here with my two friends, um, Alex and Mike. Maybe you guys can introduce yourselves. Alex? Um, Hi, my name's Alex Bose. I'm uh, based in Montreal. I'm doing a Master's in Translation Studies at Concordia University, and uh, thanks for tuning in. (laughs) (laughs) My name's uh, Michael, or Mike Fong. I live in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I study political studies. Um, Yeah, I'm a big fan of the popular tapes. I have a history with these folks, and I'm very glad to be here for the first time. It's great to have you on, man. Yeah, it is. So yeah, Mike's been our friend for a long time, so it's uh, really fun to uh, have him here chatting with us uh, about politics uh, on the podcast for the first time. So, um, okay, I guess what we're going to do is just dive right in here, and I'm going to open it up by just trying to like talk a little bit about the general tone of uh, this election, something I've heard a lot, and then uh, kind of give a bit of a a counterintuitive reading of the way that one could vote in this upcoming election, and then uh, we'll see how well that lands with you guys and uh, where we can go from there. So what I've been hearing a lot from people as I'm talking to them just kind of anecdotally about the election is that, um, you know, I just the sentiment that people are fed up with it, that they don't want to deal with it, you know, they're just like, oh, we got to just get this over with. Like, everyone is, like, totally uninspired by the potential political leaders. And uh, you even get this a bit from the commentariat class, you know, I saw in the Toronto Star, uh, Michael Corrin wrote, he described uh, this election, he said it's a wretched election with less discussion of authentic ideas and policies than I can ever remember. Uh, you know, and this does seem to be kind of a general sentiment from people that I'm, I'm talking to. It's like, oh, we, we talking about the leaders, they'll say, oh, like we hate them all. And then, so you're getting that there's this kind of malaise, this sense of uh, disaffection, um, and dissatisfaction with the kind of existing political arrangement, the existing political parties with the leaders, you know, there's people are looking at it saying there's no good option, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the same time, you have have this kind of counter narrative where uh, people are saying like, oh, this is like a crucial election, one of the most important elections in history. It's one of the last two elections before the kind of IPCC reports uh, targets of uh, climate change where it's going to get significantly worse. You know, this is one of the most important elections of our lifetime. Um, Oh, millennials, you know, now you're in the majority. You guys need to really get out the vote. Have your voice heard. Uh, It doesn't matter who you vote for. Just get out and vote. It's your civic responsibility. So you have this kind of countervailing narrative where this really kind of moralizing tone that says like, oh, you got to vote. This is your way of like being heard, of being represented, and of representing yourself on the public stage. Um, 
And those two things seem to be in real stark contrast to me, right? The feeling, the felt sense that like none of these leaders are any good and that this election is sort of fraudulent. And then on the other hand, this kind of moralizing discourse that like, oh no, you got to get out the vote. So I think part of this is the way that we frown on uh, those people who do not vote. And there's a general kind of sense that people who don't vote are just like ignorant or they're apathetic. They don't understand the importance of voting. Yeah, they're sort of letting down their civic duty, uh, this kind of thing. And so, well, uh, there's also that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah uh, no. No. Please go. Ahead. No. No. There, there's. There's also a. Uh, there's also that like uh, idea that you know non-voting. There's a logic that's like, oh well, every non-vote is a vote for the uh, the like winning party or something yeah. like this. Yeah. 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 But I, but I, I mean, we'll get into that. Uh, we might break that that down a bit totally. uh, if we talk more about strategic voting. Yeah. Absolutely. Better, but, we'll um, definitely want to hit that. So. I'm going to give just like a brief defense of non-voting. <laughs> I think that you could ha- take a principled stance and not vote and that there's something to that. And I really want to lean into this sentiment that I described at the beginning, which is the felt sense that um, none of these leaders are good enough, that this is a it, voting is ineffective. It doesn't matter who I vote for. My voice will not be heard. I'm not represented by this political system and by these uh, uh, political leaders, this political class, right? Because I do think that there's something to that and that people are right to feel that. And we shouldn't just moralize to them and say, like, oh, well, you just got to learn more, educate yourself, and get out the vote. That's actually not true because there is something to that that feeling that people have and i'm going to uh just sort of unpack it a little bit so uh canada um what is canada right canada is uh a state that was founded by european colonists on indigenous land it was part of the british empire originally and its purpose uh, as a part of the British Empire, was to extract resources, right? Feed mm. into uh, its military of global dominance, um, feed into the um, forms of capitalist uh, production that were going on in uh, England, right? Like Canada has long been a place where raw resources were extracted and uh, used for imperial purposes abroad while the people who lived there were slaughtered or uh, ignored so the, the state of Canada really like it comes out of that history and t- uh, today on the global stage right it's a member state of NATO close ally to the United States and uh, Britain and these kind of uh, large-scale capitalist imperial powers and uh, it continues to lend support militarily culturally etc uh, financially to those states it's an integral part of like an ongoing uh, capitalist economy so I think that when people feel this disaffection disaffection they feel that they're not represented by their political system that they're tasting a little bit of that right they're they're getting a sense of that history of the fact that the state isn't really there to um, support them. Uh, It isn't really constructed around like concern for human flourishing. Uh, It, it, that, 
that that's just not the case. And I think by not voting, what people are doing, often I think unconsciously, because I don't, I'm not saying that most people are taking like this strongly principled stance um, when they don't vote, but I think unconsciously they're withholding their consent uh, from the form of governance that is kind of operating over them. And there, there's something to that because the, the state uh, of Canada and like other Western capitalist uh, democratic states, like they need that democratic participation. They need you to consent to the governance because that is how they justify and legitimate themselves. And they need to be able to present themselves as bastions of freedom and um, like democratic legitimacy. And so I do think that voting is an important part of that. And so when the choices are extremely narrow and not representative of people's issues, they be, they start this moralizing discourse up um, in order to generate the feeling that, oh, we have to participate. It's our duty um, in order to um, grant this state legitimacy. And when you look at the numbers, like if, if 60% of the population, I think the lowest was uh, in, in 2005, 61% of Canadians voted in a federal election. That's like just over half, you know? It's not exactly... Uh, a, a huge majority and you have to wonder like who's not being included in those cut that polling data as well like people non-citizens etc mm-hmm. um so i i do think that there are a lot of people like within this kind of contiguous landmass that we uh understand as canada who are not consenting are withholding their consent to um, be governed by uh, the Canadian state. And that that isn't you, – you shouldn't moralize to those people. Um, could, could I could I jump in here? Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of just uh, rolling with it here. But hopefully, hopefully I've kind of made the case if that, if that makes sense to you guys. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, I mean the act of non-voting actually uh, – and this idea of not consenting – to the state, uh, you know, and granting it uh, the that kind of legitimacy mm-hmm. as like even just to grant it this idea that it's a participatory democracy or something like this. Yeah, uh, reminds me a lot of uh, something that Audra Simpson writes in her book Mohawk Interruptus, yeah. which is like the practice of uh, or the politics of refusal. And uh, she she talks about uh, it here. If I can just read this like passage here. Uh, where she says, so on April 28th, 2010, three Mohawks of Ganawage were detained in El Salvador, uh, sorry, El Salvador for 17 days. They were flying back from the International Climate Change Conference in Bolivia and were traveling on Haudenosaunee passports. They refused to allow Canada to issue them emergency travel documents, which amounts to, uh, which amounts to a passport. They waited instead for 10 more days, and they were permitted re-entry into Canada via Iroquois Confederacy passports. This detention is not an anomaly. Uh, She says, this event is part of something larger, a set of assertions by Haudenosaunee peoples through time. They make these assertions based upon the validity and vitality of their own philosophical and governmental systems, systems that predate the advent of the settler state. So I, just to come back to like this idea of refusal, uh, you know, um, can also 
be taken up into that narrative as you were kind of describing here too. Yeah, with exactly. the history of Canada. Exactly. Yeah? Yeah, so many people who don't identify with the settler state of Canada um, and see themselves as sovereign over uh, various kind of portions of land within uh, what's known as Canada yeah. would also want would also want to uh, withdraw consent from that form of governance. But um, that doesn't matter. This governance is still imposed on them. Like these extractive industries continue to go into their land and uh, take their resources and force them into uh, poverty and uh, decimate the environment and so on and so forth. And by voting in these elections, we are giving our uh, consent to that process, to that state. We're saying, Yes, like this is a democratic state. We're participating in that directly, um, in that expropriation. If I could just uh, jump in here. Yeah, yeah. Please, please, yeah. I think we risk um, putting too much rationality into people who don't vote. You know, I suggest that there might be more practical reasons why we have such a low voter turnout in elections. You know, especially when we look at how, um, you know, low income people, you know, especially like people who work in care, care positions where whether, you know, you're doing child care or working in precarious uh, forms of labor, you know, where you're not able to kind of get the time off to go, uh, go vote, you know, perhaps like, you know, people who drop out of school earlier, mm-hmm. right? And they don't have the same, you know, and again, this risks falling into the argument that you were making earlier about like moralizing on the basis of saying that like, you know, these people who don't vote don't, you know, know the stakes, you know, they don't see the value in voting. But mm-hmm. I think that there is something to that, you know, and especially if you look at the history of the franchise in Canada, you know, the earliest people who could vote were generally uh, white land-owning men, cis men. And then you kind of gradually have these other kinds of like inclusions, you know, that are made by people who are resisting those kind of like limited normative, you know, kinds of inclusions, right? Saying that we want women to vote, you know, we want people of color to vote, you know, Asian Canadians, we want to be able to vote. And this is, you know, that kind of like typical liberal narrative about kind of the gradual progression of opening up the franchise. But I think today, you know, there's a lot of youth who don't vote. And this is happening in the same context as, you know, the cutting to social services the cutting to education, right? And like right now, but also in the last 20, 30 years, you've seen cuts to uh, like the humanities. Mm-hmm. You know, like since the 90s, we've seen liberal arts schools, you know, having to find other sources of revenue, you know, relying less on government support, right? And there's been this growing distrust in in suspicion towards the humanities, you know, whether that's like politics class and civic, civics classes in 
primary education. So I think that these things play a part in people not really caring about elections. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I think a useful frame for this as well is uh, neoliberalism, something that we haven't really talked about too much so yeah. far. But uh, Do you mind if I... No, 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 please. Please jump in. I can respond to you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I really like what you just said, because I, I remember reading this book um, called The Poetics of Imperialism. And uh, in that book, the author talks about how like during the Industrial Revolution, especially, there was a huge interest and shift from the focus on uh, like classical and liberal arts education onto uh, mechanical arts and like engineering and these kinds of things. And like all of these institutions and departments started popping up to try and give more impetus to the industrial working class, basically. And then like all of the other specialized fields, I guess, that would become part of the knowledge economy and stuff like this. The government was just like giving uh, tons of subsidies to any classical colleges that were willing to uh, invest in these uh, utilitarian programs, uh, especially in the the U.S., because he's mainly talking about the United States in uh, this particular book. I feel like there is, like, that, that can be taken up into this larger discussion that we should have on neoliberalism here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you can still have, you know, like um, a prioritization of the sciences, you know, while still having a sense of civic duty and an understanding of the importance of voting, or at least understanding how voting works, right? And how the idea of representation works, right? I think that like a lot of people don't, really have a sense and now I don't want to come off as like condescending or patronizing but I don't think a lot of people have a sense of how electoral systems work you know the difference between the American presidential system and the Canadian parliamentary system I don't think that this is something that you have to go to university to to learn about this is something that should be spoken about in public schools families should be talking about this more often but i think this that speaks to the larger problem which is that if you look at who's voting i don't have statistics to draw on but you start to see that people who have a stake in the economic system are more likely to vote right and you see this in the messaging of the big tent uh, kind of liberal and conservative parties, the messaging of the middle class, mm-hmm. right? You don't really, the middle class are people who see themselves being able to enter the workforce and they want to be able to have some upward mobility. They want to have the possibility of a career where they can possibly make six figures and obviously i'm just projecting a bit but i think that it serves some people's interests in our economic system to have people who are perhaps not benefiting from the economic system not voting Mm -hmm. and i think that 
that is kind of associated with these kind of cuts that we see to education. Totally. So uh, if I could kind of read the subtext here, part of what you're saying is that, in fact, those people who might be inclined not to vote because of precisely because of that felt sense of um, the lack of representation and the kind of pointlessness of voting or even a more principled stance where uh, you might want to withdraw consent from a state uh, and, ge- and more generally a kind of political economy that you see as dangerous, voting conversely could be a potentially disruptive tool to that uh, state or political economic form of organization um, if it were organized such that those people who are uh, conventionally left out were enfranchised not only legally and technically but um, literally in the sense of like these large numbers of people were were mobilized to go to the ballot box. Yeah. Yeah, no, and... And especially when we look at the way that the media, like, rationalizes low voter turnout. Yeah. You know, when we see low, to, low voter turnout, the common concept that's deployed is voter apathy. Yeah. Right. And you start seeing people trying to explain away low voter, vote, low voter turnout instead of seeing it as a problem, yeah. you know, of the, econo- of the political system. They see it as the choices that these individuals are making, right? This is this kind of neoliberal individualism where the focus is on the individual who has chosen not to go to the ballot, uh, the ballot box, yeah. right? It gets kind of moralized at that level. It's like, oh, well, they're being a bad citizen. Yeah. They're being <laughs> a bad <laughs> voter, right? Because they don't see the benefit. And I think that there's definitely a risk here, you know, and I, most people just don't, they don't see that the danger in that kind of discourse of voter apathy. Yeah. I, and so I completely agree. And, um, I, I also think that the, the discourse of voter apathy is incredibly dangerous. And that's kind of why I was making the case for the principled, uh, non-voting, um, in the first place is as a counterpoint to the narrative of just simple ignorance or apathy. But, and I, I, I take your point that, um, it's a kind of neoliberal individualism and a demonization of those people who are not voting often for, uh, as you point out, structural reasons where they were withheld like the appropriate education or um, economic opportunities to really understand what role voting played in uh, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so wouldn't you say that it's also a kind of uh, very dangerous discourse to moralize to those people because it participates in their demonization to say, Oh, you're just apathetic and you're just ignorant. And that's why like you need to like educate yourself and like come out and vote. Uh, doesn't matter who you vote for like that whole kind of discourse as well. Don't you think, because that isn't really aimed at like mobilizing people, uh, to fight for their interests and helping to educate people about what those interests are, right? It's not trying to build a collective kind of power. Instead, it seems to me that that discourse that just says, oh, just get out the vote, um, 
uh, participates in that demonization and in that moralization mm -hmm. to which the voter apathy narrative is the, the kind of like darker, more, um, uh, more directly demonizing flip side, right? Like I see those as two sides of the same coin. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that there's yeah. like a, the voter apathy is more like a, it's, it's more of like a nihilism. There's like yeah. a nihilism that is felt towards the political system. And you, you kind of began by talking about the, you emphasized the feeling that people mm -hmm. have, you know, towards the system and kind of not wanting to, they feel like it's not working for them. Yeah. Right. And I think the thing that is behind or working in tandem with this kind of rise and resurgence of populism is the, the play to emotion and feeling. I feel like the, the classic liberal defense, you know, or argument against uh, voter apathy is an appeal to reason. You yeah. Know? It's like, let's try to talk to people about, let's try to persuade people, you know, why they should vote when they feel like they shouldn't. It doesn't really work because people aren't voting because they don't feel like it. And I think that it's, it's the feeling, but as I said before, it's also these kind of like structural things, you know, it, it's a privilege to know why it's important to vote. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's overlooked. And when I say privilege, I mean, you know, we think about like middle-class homes, right? You know, you think about like, you know, like, being able to have the stability of, you know, the kind of like idyllic fam nuclear family household where you can sit over dinner and have CBC going on in the background and the family can have lively democratic, you know, like discussions over dinner, you know, like one person has like, you know, sympathies towards the conservative party, the son maybe, and then like maybe like <laughs> the sister, you know, likes the Green Party. It's just like that's like such a utopic and privileged assumption to make when we have such uh, precarious economic conditions. Yeah. You know, especially with young people struggling to find a way into the workforce. You know, just as a kind of joke. You know, it's like, it's really funny how you have a lot of young people now kind of demanding, and you, you see this a lot in the appeal of like the Conservative Party and the People's Party of Canada, but people want capitalism to work. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, give me a job. I just want to have a nine to five. Yeah. Like, I'll vote for anyone who can give me this. Yeah, any job creator any pro-job candidates and like all this coded language about the economy and everything that I, I do think that you're right, but that the conservatives are simultaneously uh, strongly generating this felt sense of disaffection and that the system isn't working for you and generating the conditions of precarious work through their policy. Mm -hmm. And we got to think, right? Like we're coming out of a decade of conservative policy, um, which was like strongly ideological 
all about like cutting social services, cutting down quote unquote big government, right? And just like creating this really like austere economy where uh, precarious work and these uh, really part time jobs uh, were able to flourish and pop up um, all over the place. It's like they're simultaneously generating those conditions and then benefiting from people's misunderstanding of those conditions and that felt sense of disaffection by saying like creating these arbitrary kind of divisions about which you get really angry, you know, um, like I watched actually a video of Stephen Harper talk explaining global politics and like explaining conservatism, and uh, he set up this bizarre distinction between like the anywheres and the somewheres, and the anywhere is like the urban like um, cosmopolitan individual who's a. a a banker or a designer and their job can can move around whereas the somewhere is someone who's really like rooted in place and you know if the economy changes then they suffer and he's like i'm conservatism is about like helping the somewheres really like cast off the yoke of these anywheres and it's just this like whack like totally bizarre kind of division between people but it works because there is like um, that felt sense of resentment, that anger, that that you don't have a good kind of understanding about who or where to direct it, right? Like who's to blame? But you also feel recognized in a situation like that too, right? Like you feel, yeah, you know, if you're if you're one of the somewheres or something, yeah, and the rhetoric speaks to you, then you yeah. feel recognized by that. Yeah, you exactly. Know, you know, exactly. Candidate, and that's key. You know that mm-hmm. that recognition. You know that kind of like. That feeling that somebody is in control, yeah. that someone has a sense of how to do damage control, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, I want to tie this back into not voting. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, it, no, it, it does seem like conservatives are, are benefiting uh, both from, or sorry, they're both creating the conditions that like are causing people to have this felt sense of uh, disaffection mm-hmm. and they are benefiting from it by precisely mobilizing those disaffected people and saying like, we are the ones who are like going to stand up for you uh, when these fucking liberals who only talk about um, like policy tweaks or whatever are out there screwing you over. And so they are going to put more money playing, in your pocket uh, playing it both <laughs> yeah or they're going to put more money in your pocket they're playing both <laughs> sides that way and not just and the liberals i feel like uh yeah don't have a real leg to stand on there but it yeah to bring it back to not voting it's it is that question of like why did people get to that situation where they, they have the franchise but they're not using it and yeah. then um how do you how do you then mobilize that group yeah sorry yeah no, it's like I think it, this is really interesting because I feel like the conservatives have been able to historically mobilize. If we think about like, you know, right now in particular, like places like Alberta and mm-hmm. Jason Kenney and stuff like this. And like, yeah. you know, the kind of like the disaffected people, workers who are being impacted by this kind of like the prospect of a transition away from fossil fuels. Like, yeah. You know, I know many people who've gone out west, you know, from Nova Scotia and the Maritimes to find work out there. Mm-hmm. And it's really polarizing the idea and topic of climate change. You know, there's many climate skeptics out there. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that you have like simultaneously in our economy, you have these kind of like 
urban spaces where kind of like the neoliberal economies of, and when I say neoliberal here, I mean like the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial societies, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of like the spaces where you have like, you know, entertainers, you know, like graphic designers who are moving from gig to gig, right? And they're kind of not anchored in working for like, you know, a corporation with like a stable job, you know, unlike, almost like an antithesis to, you know, working for like an oil extraction company where you have this kind of like stability, right? Mm -hmm. And I think on one hand, it's interesting to uh, contrast these two positions because one thing that I have written down here that I wanted to mention while I was listening to one of you guys speak earlier was, uh, you know, how the neoliberal individual is radically resistant towards being put in a box, Mm -hmm. right? And especially the box of the political party, you know? So it's like, it's really interesting how like in opposition to that, to use Harper's kind of like somewhere kind of description, like the person who's like working, say like on like an oil rig or something, right? It's like, they may be like more easily alignable with like a political party because they like their kind of individuality, just given their kind of like day to day life, you know, of kind of like being one among a team, you know, they see themselves, you know, reflected in this kind of public that the political party is capitulating to them, which is kind of like holding up to them in the mirror. Right. Whereas I feel like a lot of like the entrepreneurial hustler kind of like inner city kind of life. Yeah. Yeah. But I I guess I would want to submit to you that um, those two people are actually more alike than they are different in the way that they, um, in the way that their work is structured Mm -hmm. because both of those people are contractors. Yeah. Right. So even though there's the myth of like the working man who like has like the salary job working for the oil company, like in reality, a lot of those workers don't work that way. They're temporary workers, they're contract workers, their work is precarious and the money dries up, it dries up. And they're feeling that in the same way that the gig economy worker in the city is going from contract to contract to contract and doesn't have the stability of a salaried, um, consistent job, right? So both of those people's work conditions are, uh, in terms of their structure, are more similar than they are different, but the differences are played up into these kind of mythologized versions of the two, of of the two. But really like Mm -hmm. both of us are subjects under um, this neoliberal economic regime, Mm -hmm. um, which is to say a kind of economic regime, which strongly forcefully individualizes people Mm -hmm. and uh, has this kind of narrative of, of personal responsibility. So you're not part of something uh, bigger, even, even if that was just a company, you're not a worker hired by a company, you're an independent contractor, you are an entrepreneur, you're a business, right? Uh, you have to build your own brand. Like that's as true for the um, person who works on the oil rigs as it is for the uh, designer living in downtown Toronto or whatever, right? Like both of those people have to create that um, kind of individuality. And I think 
the conservative party is better than the liberals at playing up this fantasized difference between the two and obfuscating the way in which they work under similar economic conditions. Yeah, no, I take that. But it's interesting how like, so say like coming from the left or at least left of center, like the NDP, whose platform this election has been you know, focused on like things like pharmacare, you know, dental care, these kinds of social programs that benefit people who are working in these kind of precarious gig economy kind of working conditions. Because the thing is, when you're working as a contract worker, you don't necessarily have access to benefits. Yeah. You know, and if you, you know, like if you're if you're working in a contract position where you have a high enough income to at least give you some stability in terms of like having enough money to be able to pay for your dental work or being able to pay for eyeglasses or something like this, you might not see the benefit of those kind of social programs, right? Unlike say like a gig worker who's, you know, like speaking from personal experience, like a musician where you're not making nearly as much as say somebody who's working in the resource uh, economy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'd love to drill down on this a little bit because we ha- we talked a-, a bit about the conservatives. We talked about what the- what they do well and how they uh, are taking advantage of um, the economic conditions that they also stridently help create. And I think what what I would say about that, I, I have a lot more to say about that. But um, what I would say is that it's a deeply, deeply cynical project. Um, I, it's really dark. I don't think that the people who are doing it really are like believers. I mean, uh, surely a few of them are like, there are the kind of like ideologues who just have these fantastical views about how economics work. Um, and, uh, that they strongly push that, but I think it's a very cynical project. I think that um, they're intentionally uh, sowing these divisions and creating these kind of false uh, dichotomies between anywheres and somewheres or whatever. And uh, they're doing that in order to continue to gain power for themselves, for um, extractive industry, for a vision of the future, which continues to involve heavy um, industry and concentrated wealth in a, a very small number of people. I think it's a very dark and cynical project. Um, and it's evil as fuck, man. Here, here. Uh, <laughs> 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 So, I, I, but okay. So we talked a little bit about about the conservatives, and we started talking about the NDP. So I'd actually like to talk about the NDP a little bit more, and we can say, I, 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 I um. What where what is the, where do they fit into this kind of contemporary economic arrangement that we've really been kind of circling around? Right, this uh, the in the neoliberal settler state of Canada, like what function does the NDP actually play? We know that they kind of have this history as like a social democratic party that um, they've kind of 
stridently uh, aligned themselves with the labor movement in the past. But we can also say that the contemporary NDP has made some very strange kind of political maneuvers in the past mm-hmm. few years. And we might think of like the la- the 2015 election where it seemed like uh, the NDP were kind of running to the right of the liberals and uh, were, were, do- were trying to beat the conservatives at their own game where they talk about the importance of a balanced budget and these hard economic truths. And then we also saw the NDP in Alberta with Rachel Notley and her kind of attempt to beat the conservatives at the at their own game where she just fought like tooth and nail for uh, the construction of these pipelines, you know? Mm-hmm. And while you might say like that is somewhat in line with like an idea of like supporting labor, I think that uh, there's a strong case to be made and that we've made the case before um, on this podcast if people care to go back and listen that um, you know that's not really looking out for labor at all that's looking out for the interests of international oil corporations you know because most of these laborers uh, don't get jobs off the construction of these pipelines the uh, number of jobs that are actually produced are laughably few it's precarious work etc cetera, etc cetera. like this isn't really a good project if you tr- care about the labor movement if you care about um people so why why are they making those moves and do you think that they've learned from their mistakes when we're looking at this contemporary election or like what kind of role are they playing here i think they're doing a really good job at um just like keeping a consistent frame in terms of the actors you know like Mm -hmm. kind of just setting up this kind of narrative of the super wealthy and you know the storing of money in uh, offshore accounts and stuff, tax havens and stuff like this, and also like with like taxing web giants and stuff like this. I think they're doing a really good job of kind of like instead of focusing on specific projects and getting caught in that kind of pitfall, you know, and focusing on you know. F- families, individuals with, uh, you know, healthcare needs and stuff like this. They're doing a really good job of avoiding some of the mistakes that they've made in the past, you know, of kind of getting too caught up in the game of pipelines. Yeah. Right. When I say the game of pipelines and kind of like coming out and saying that they're going to, you know, try to support and be really heavy handed in terms of the economy. They've kind of like, been able to be vague enough on those specifics because honestly in this election the other parties are doing are kind of like dictating the they're kind of just already debating in in amongst themselves on the specific pipelines either whether that's like in Quebec or out west i think it, just from an optics point of view i think it's really interesting that you have Jagmeet saying who's like a racialized man person of color, you know, coming in and talking about economic conditions and not necessarily, you know, like coming out and being like playing the race card. Mm -hmm. There's been instances where he's kind of brought it up in reaction to events, such as uh, the confrontation he had while in uh, Montreal Yeah, last week. So I think that's a really interesting contrast from, uh, uh, Mulcair in the last election. Oh, absolutely. 
And uh, it's interesting that, that you point out he um, uh, how he hasn't really played that card. But it seemed like if we in that last leaders debate, for example, like everyone played that card for him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like every leader went, took turns being like, "Congratulations for like." <laughs> Yeah, for handling racism well. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm going to continue to stoke the fires here. Like. <laughs> I like how you don't get angry. You know, you re- react very stoically. If only more of the young people would do that. Well, every leader is like consistently involved in all this heinously racist shit. Like, oh yeah, seventy five percent of the people on that stage like have these like dark racist like past going on. Anyway, uh, I mean, apart from also setting up that discourse around the economy and, uh, you know, talking about the super rich and this kind of stuff. Um, Singh has also, you know, tried to to make uh, serious pledges for uh, indigenous uh, nations and stuff. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, for Grassy Narrows, for example, he had said that he would commit all of the money that they needed to clean up the mercury poisoning Mm -hmm. uh, and their water supply and stuff like this. Yeah, I honestly think that like he's just been the best in terms of uh i'm guess i'm just making a guess here of like surrounding himself with people who are very savvy when it comes to like social media culture yeah you know being able to you know uh come out with these kind of zingers mm-hmm. these like sound bites that are very level-headed and not too earnest and when they're and when it's serious, it feels heartfelt mm-hmm. because it's grounded in anecdotal uh, accounts of interactions that he's had with people. Yeah. yeah. Right. He constantly brings up these kind of like, you know, instances that he's had with people like who are struggling with these very specific circumstances and how like the NDP's policies are going to specifically address that person's interests. Yeah. And I think that's something that has been totally missed this election by the liberals and the conservatives, Mm -hmm. just because they've been really caught up in this friggin', uh, their horns have been just caught in one, locked with one another. And it's at the point of the leaders. It's not really like, there's not much difference in terms of, their policy platforms. Yeah. yeah. At least that I've been able to get from watching all of the debates. Uh, and it's funny, like, I, I think you're right. Cause like when you watch the debate and you see Jagmeet Singh, like he looks directly at the camera, like he looks at you and is like, you see these fucking guys, you know, like, he kind of <laughs> does that a little bit. He's like, I, I like, I'm like you, but I'm up here with these dudes, you know, <laughs> they, he kind of does that thing where he builds that like solidarity with you in a much more like immediate way. Yeah. So he's has, been, but it's funny because that's exactly what people liked about Trudeau back in 2015. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Right. His ability to be tapped into social media culture. He was the woke bay, and um, like, so that, but so that brand, like he doesn't have the same control over that brand anymore, um, which is, it's just interesting to see. Well, yeah, and yeah, no, no, uh, what you bring up just now, like, uh, when I was biking home, um, you know, I see I see all these political posters everywhere, like throughout the city. And, you know, at the NDP, there's there's Jagmeet Singh with uh, Alexandre Boulouris, who's like the, the MP here. They have the like brand slogan or whatever. And it's like, on se bat pour vous, like we fight for you. Mm-hmm. you know? So there's also that part of like the theme that's characterizing this rapport and solidarity yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. 
we kind of like the NDPA, like we kind of like them, and but we want them to do better. I think that's the thing for me is that the NDP, it's like I I like a lot of things that they're doing, and I see them trying to build that solidarity. But I just I wish they would go further, and I wish that they would stop um, compromising in advance. Like they ha- have become, I think as we could see through their history in the past like few elections and with the governments in Alberta and everything, um, like they've become too willing to make compromises to what they believe the polls are telling them. And so what do we like about these guys when they could come, not only just come across, but actually like act as though they had principles and they had values and um, they believed in these kinds of like, social transformation right like these are the things that we like about them but they are only willing to do that when they see it as like advantageous um from the perspective of some kind of like real politique like um cold political science and i think that's a huge mistake on their part because um if people saw them lead values first and if we could jet, if we could look at that history and say, yeah, you know what, they stood up for those values every time, even when it cost them, people would be much more likely to uh, think that they have integrity and to uh, throw their lot in with them. I think that they compromise too much uh, in advance in favor of some kind of like fantasy of electability, and that's um, it's disappointing. But that's what's so interesting about uh, the NDP. This election, because you have the um, surging popularity of the Green Party, and the Green Party has traditionally been um, the party of principle. When I met with uh, Elizabeth May earlier this year, um, when I spoke to her, she was talking about how the Green Party is not the party of compromise. You know, like all the other parties will kind of compromise on their goals before they even lay out their platform and she's like you know we're the ones here who set the bar really high Mm -hmm. because you know one party has to be the one who says this is the right thing to do we're probably not going to actually enact policy that aligns with the right thing to do but we have to at least say it so that we are kind of doing justice to ourselves if you kind of like compromise before you even put your policy to paper you know like you have more, you have less ground to cover. I mean, I love that. So why do I feel this uh, total uh, antipathy towards the Greens? Like, I actually, I'm so frustrated with them this election. Like, you know, I have actually, I voted for the Greens when I was younger. And um, I, because I believed in, setting these strong environmental targets. And I thought like that, you know what, if we want to protect this environment, like we need to set these stringent goals and this is what we need to do. But now the way that I look at it, when I read their platforms and when I hear them talk about their ideas is I just think like you guys actually believe that the future, that, that a, a green future, that a future where the environment is protected is still a capitalist future. And by your kind of disinterest in questions of the labor movement, in questions of class, uh, and it's not that they're totally uninterested in social issues, but they just seem willing to – they just seem disinterested in them. Um, 
that makes me really skeptical because I, I just don't think that there is like just a green capitalism, like a techie fix out of this um, out of this situation. You know, I think it runs deeper than that. I think it cuts to the soul, but also to the heart of like our economic forms of uh, relationship. And the the NDP for me at least have a history of talking about that, even if. You don't get much uh, in terms of that today. I'd say the NDP and the Green Party have a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, like they are part of the same experiment. You know, yeah. in the co- what's most likely to happen is, and this is kind of where I'm at with my own predictions right now. But it's like, you know, if there's a minority government that's formed with either the liberals or conservatives as having that minority, and assuming that the Greens and NDP respectively uh, are able to hold on to some seats. The Green would have to, you know, win a few seats. They would still together hold a kind of kingmaker position either way, right? And I think that like the Green Party doesn't necessarily have to advocate on the side of you know traditional, you know, leftist political economy kind of like issues. Whether that's like well, one they like pharmacare and stuff, but they. They actually have a pretty robust uh, policy when it comes to like pharmacare and childcare and stuff like this, but they don't champion those issues because their priority is the environment, and also because the the NDP will be championing those principles. So it's like I always kind of see them as two characters in the same room who have a bit of a natural alliance ship. That's kind of unspoken. Yeah, know? but then why are they at each other? Because they're fight the, the, this, and maybe this comes down to like I think where we're going to go. Past the post. Yeah, it's first past yeah. the post. Is that they're fighting for the same electorate, and so they're going at each other. Like I, you know, I, in that in that English language debate, I I couldn't stand to see Elizabeth May being like, "Yeah, but Jack, me, what are your targets?" and so on. It's like, yeah, dude, like, you know. Just let him be. Like, he's not your enemy, you know? Don't go after him, like, on these questions. And also, like, you know, he's got targets. Like, (laughs) it's, you know, that's not really the main question here. So I just, I found that stuff really frustrating. And and I see that as well, like, at the more local level in these kind of ridings around where I live. Like, greens have really surged. And there's a, a, a lot of, like, grassroots enthusiasm for the greens and i just see that it's like well it's just going to cut into the ndp's electorate and probably a little bit into the liberals you know and like i don't even know if they're going to win these seats but there is you, you sense that momentum and it's like i know people who are working for the party who are campaigning for the green party in a way that i'm not seeing so much with the ndp right now like and i i, I do know people kind of working with both parties but I feel like there's just an energy right now at the grassroots level behind the greens, but I think that when it comes to these environmental questions, you're saying like they they don't necessarily need to champion those traditional like leftist struggles around like um, labor or like the social safety net for workers. And to me, I just think those things are so closely linked together. Um, this question of like an environmental future where um, you know, life can be preserved in some <laughs> yeah. semblance of like, you know, order and beauty. And, um, 
and questions and these kind of social these social questions around the way that we organize our society and the way that we treat people, especially the most vulnerable. Um, I just think those things are really closely connected, and I see the Greens seeming to want to reach out more to like a business class, yeah. which I, I'm I'm very suspicious of. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. I'm very suspicious of that of that posture. I think the the critique of the kind of like liberal greenwashing that happens is that you don't see the same, you don't see like these kind of green initiatives are all about incentivizing a rearrangement of the means of production and of the existing capital that's already out there in the economy. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, it's kind of like, they're really just trying to be like giving a warning to the corporations and companies out there that that there's going to be a shift and you use like tax mechanisms and other mm-hmm. sorts of like yeah exemptions and other sorts of forms of incentives to get them to like shift away from fossil fuels to green energy but the yeah. thing is that kind of like there's something really strange about that because there's no, there's no disruption of these kind of like monopolies that already exist, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think you, you see that from the NDP, you know, kind of being like by emphasizing the kind of ultra rich, you know, by being like, we're going to go after these people. And that's something that you don't see from the kind of greenwashing liberal kind of approach to the, to climate. But even, even, even with, Singh, though, in the NDP, like uh, going after them and then, you know, taxing the rich and creating that form of revenue is still, it's still not actually like, you know, dismantling, right? It's, it's still just getting more revenue and operating on the, the economic structure that already exists in a way, isn't mm-hmm. it? Like, yeah, it is, but at least it's redistributive, yeah, right? That's true. Like tax incentives yeah. are not redistributive, right? Like they are mechanisms that allow the current like uh, mechan- uh, the current techniques of like wealth accumulation to function unabated, right? It's, they're just like, oh, maybe we can steer while you continue to just accumulate wealth on this massive scale. Maybe we can just like steer the ship a couple degrees over here, you know. Whereas something like any kind of um, any kind of policy that is at least slightly redistributive is um, going to be much stronger, much more forceful. And I do think that none of these parties are like getting serious in the sense of like what needs to happen. And so, like I was speaking in sort of like an anarchistic tone in the beginning about like withholding consent from a state and um, this kind of thing, but. I will say that I do think like large scale state mechanisms are. Going to be, uh, I hesitate to use the word necessary to um, really transform the direction of the economy. To just say, you know what, we are um, taking over the tar sands production completely. You know, mm-hmm. it is no longer going to be owned privately, um, or or kind of similar moves to that. And, 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 you know, once we take it over, we're going to steer it. It's not, no longer going to be geared towards, um, uh, geared towards generating profit for a private company. It's going to be geared towards winding down. 
Um, and I, I'm just not hearing anyone talking about that stuff and saying like, you know, really naming your enemies and saying who you're going to go after and saying like, yes, this is a struggle and it is about power. It is about power, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this issue though comes all the way back to, uh, fighting for those, those voters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. like, uh, if you, if you make, if someone makes that claim, then that runs the risk of not getting uh, like the votes. Like there has to be this pandering, right? Yeah, I just feel like that 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 is one of the structural uh, issues that a lot of parties are facing when it comes to the pandering's like so pathetic. <laughs> it's so pathetic to see them like <laughs> grovel and like pander to these absurd thing. anyway yeah uh yeah but maybe i don't know maybe we could talk a little bit about first past the post though like can yeah. we get there yeah yeah sure. uh, from this so, yeah so okay you can't have these strong kind of structural arguments why because you're trapped pandering to people to win these seats in order to enact any kind of policy to be in a position where you could um wield power at all so regardless of which party you're in so what's wrong with that, right? Um, why is that a problem? Well, it just it puts people part of the same a part of the same communities. So if you have like a riding, it puts people who are trying to do good in their riding. It pins them against one another. It kind of like keeps us from expanding our sense of community and our sense of compassion and solidarity for people in our com- for within ridings mm-hmm. you know you have this kind of like just this antagonism that comes that comes up between people who are ultimately on the same side and i think that it kind of feeds into this adversarial culture that is already prevalent in our kind of like imperialistic kind of like violent cultures which is soaked with imagery of crush your enemies and win Mm -hmm. you know and uh, it ties in with all of these kind of mythologies on we are just winning the survival of the fittest (laughs) competition Competition in business, competition in politics, like, and in that way, you know, I think like first past the post is simultaneously something that contributes to that, but is also symptomatic of that. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that first past the post is the electoral system that developed in settler colonial capitalist cultures, which was yeah. premised on this kind of subjugation of the other is kind of a domination. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is also where uh, the, I feel like where um, the concept of strategic voting becomes problematic as well, because uh, if you have a first past the post voting system, uh, it, it just feels like there like is no strategy. Like there, you know, strategic voting isn't like a real thing. Like it seems like <laughs> a false idea in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think the way I, I liked the way you put it uh, when we were talking previously, where you said strategic voting. Uh, yeah, it's not strategic because it's actually just the condition of the electoral system itself. Um, 
like strategic voting it's just voting under a first past the post system it's like you have to look at like which horse is going to win this race yeah who's going to dominate and crush the other and like you just got to throw in yeah just throw in your lot with the other like based on uh, throwing your lot with the person you think is going to win based on these like kind of these these cold like calculus type of uh way of political engagement yeah. and like all <laughs> like the polling all the polling yeah the yeah it's like exactly kind of based on this data that we're generating through just kind of trying to elicit public opinion about these like un these groups who like don't really feel like they're representing anyone. And I think Mike's point is right, that it is dividing um, solidarity within communities by uh, lumping them into these like various parties. Um, and it, it stands in the way of people kind of recognizing their own interests. But uh, I would say that that – uh, you know, Mike, you put it in like a very like beautiful and like reconciliatory way. And I guess like I would also add to that though, like is that by fighting things out like tooth and nail at that level, like peer to peer, you fail to see who your real enemies are and you That's fail to really bring the fight to them. Like we need that solidarity, not just for its own sake, even though it's beautiful in and of itself to like build community and have solidarity. It's like we also need that to take on um those organizations and those structures that are driving us off that climate cliff you know that are like extracting these resources at an unsustainable level and stripping land from indigenous people right like we need that solidarity amongst our communities we need mm -hmm. to build that so that we can throw off this yoke which all of these parties um conspire to maintain right maybe yeah. that seems like a simplistic way to put it but yeah. The the elephant in the room is why there hasn't been electoral reform. Mm -hmm. You know, why do we still have first past the post? And for listeners, you know, first past the post can really just be summarized as this winner take all kind of electoral game or system, you know, where in a riding whoever receives the plurality, they they win that writing. And I feel like first past the post, looking at it from just like maybe like a psychological point of view, it is a lot of people, if they feel like they're the party that they're interested in doesn't have a chance out of fear of humiliation, they just withdraw. They say, I watch the point in voting. If my guy is just going to lose and I'm going to look like a loser mm -hmm. or like I'm going to look like, you know, like, yeah, feel humiliated. Yeah. And I like Alex's point that first past the post encourages people to do all this kind of like mental gymnastics over, you know, like, uh, you know, how their vote is going to like, you know, align with like n the national level. You know, mm -hmm. and whether it's worth it, you know, looking at other ridings and seeing what's the likelihood of like, you know, the other guys winning, you know, and then on that kind of like, you know, you kind of be like, oh, I'm going to vote this way because I don't want, you know, the conservatives to get elected. I'm going to vote for the liberals. Yeah. It's like the shittiest sports league ever. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's very inefficient from like a utilitarian perspective. And I think that it's the reason why we still have it is because 
parliament, at least the representatives there, like the Liberal Party and Trudeau and the Conservatives, um, they really fear what would happen if we did have more like, ranked ballots, you know, and the kinds of policies that would exist in that kind of context, mm-hmm. you know, because you would see representation for, you know, say, say the orange wave that we saw a few elections ago, you know, with Jack Layton, if there was a ranked ballot system, the kinds of policies that would have existed would be entirely different than those under uh, Harper. Mm-hmm. And I think that in this kind of economy, which is based off of uh, trading, like whether like you're talking about the TSX or, you know, uh, Dow Jones and stuff like this, the economy depends on predictability, you know, and you look at it in terms of like stocks and stuff like this, like things that are destabilizing aren't good. Yeah. So I, I understand, I can at least s- sympathize for governments wanting to try and steer the course in this kind of, and this is the kind of classic neoliberal uh, mantra, which is like, you know, you steer, but you don't like push mm-hmm. or I can't remember the expression, but it's about this kind of minimalistic approach, just trying to avoid the storms, but not being yeah. too heavy handed. It's ironic. It's supposed to be this light touch, but at the same time, it's like incredibly controlling because if you think about um, voting and the, as we're talking about vote, strategic voting under first past the post, um, this is kind of your singular moment of serious civic participation in which you select your representative, in which your voice is supposed to be heard. And this is you, you uh, participating in democracy, which is the freest um, form of political system, right? Or at least that's the way that the ideology kind of works. And yet, that singular moment of civic uh, participation is so incredibly managed and curated down to the finest detail. And, you, you know, you're kind of berated with like threats and warnings that if you don't vote in a particular way, then, oh, then the conservatives going to get in and they're going to enact all this draconian policy. And like, you don't want that. And like, they, you know, the only way the liberals can win is by this incredibly narrow margin. So if you vote for anyone else, then you're like a traitor to the good practices of neoliberalism that, well, steer the ship right you know it's like we just need you to show up and vote liberal and uh if you don't do that then you're some kind of like traitor to the cause of like good technocratic policy and uh the light touch will the the gloves will come off and the conservatives will bring out the iron whip and just fucking bring down the band hammer on you you know <laughs> and like that's like a horrifying situation to be put in in like your single moment of like freedom like this is supposed to be the moment that like legitimate legitimates the society as one in which freedom takes place in which your voice is represented right and like that one moment <laughs> uh, you're faced with this kind of situation you know you're tormented that way like, <laughs> yeah the the vote in the first past the post system is radically unfree yeah if you have to kind of be taking in these you know like exterior calculations yeah and it's not even people it's not even that people arrive at that kind of like approach uh naturally or naturally or logically Mm -hmm. it's usually like some third party or 
you know, some organizations who are encouraging strategic voting. Yeah. You know, it's very, it's not something that people arrive at naturally. And I think that that would be an interesting way of kind of reframing the need for uh, electoral reform. Mm -hmm. It's just by reexamining what it means to vote. Yeah. You know, it's voting for what aligns with which policies align with your interests, Mm -hmm. not this kind of like gymnastics of anticipating what is going to keep the bad guys out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And what's the relationship between, and what's the relationship between voting and freedom? Mm -hmm. You know, if voting is supposed to be the moment in which we legitimate, yes, I do in fact have freedom. Um, then why is it so fundamentally unfree? Yeah. Why is it one of the least kind of liberating experiences you can have? You know, it's like worse than buying products. Like it is like so narrowly confined. Yeah, like uh, isn't participate like isn't one aspect of participatory democracy is that you would have like yeah like more more of a freedom uh, to. Part, yeah, like participate in the creation of your like the environment that you're living in, and like yeah. the uh, like the society that you're part of, and like it's just like it's just reduced down to this one moment where you like don't even get to like you have no control, you don't have any control over like all of these structures that have been inherited. Yeah, uh, um, can I read you this quote here from Byung-Chul Han? something he wrote in uh, Psychopolitics. He writes, uh, Neoliberalism makes citizens into consumers. The freedom of the citizen yields to the passivity of the consumer. Mm -hmm. As consumers, today's voters have no real interest in politics, in actively shaping the community. They possess neither the will nor the ability to participate in communal political action. They react only passively to politics, grumbling and complaining as consumers do about a commodity or service they do not like. Totally. Yeah. And so, to, uh, that's, that's a brilliant quotation. Um, and, and it's true, right? You go into the ballot box alone. Um, mm-hmm. But it, and, and when you're the consumer, it's like, oh, like I can choose Coke or I can choose Pepsi, but I have no choice in the fact that um, – Cola is produced, you know, there are companies producing cola, they're extracting water and like, you know, sugar and labor in order to produce these products. I can choose which one I want, but the fact that they're doing that, I have absolutely no say in it. Mm -hmm. And it's similar. And so that, yeah, it is. We've become consumers as as an electorate. And so a democratic politics would be something else, right? A democratic politics would be a kind of politics where we made decisions collectively, where we understood ourselves in terms of um, uh, free uh, free people joining together to decide where we're going in the future, to decide the futures of our societies, you know? Yeah. But in order to do that, we need not the political parties that we select to, like, Coke or Pepsi off a shelf, but rather, like, groups – um, in which we feel solidarity, in which we can build bonds with our communities, and um, and in which we are empowered to make decisions. You know, where when decisions are made, we feel that we're a part of it. We feel that we are active uh, agents in that decision making, rather than yeah, the passive consumer of a decision which is made according to like some kind of like scientific policy arrangement or whatever. Um, 
So, yeah, I do think that what we're dealing with in a first-past-the-post structure and in the larger context of um, Canadian uh, settler colonial capitalism, uh, what we're dealing with there is not a democratic politics in a, in the strong sense, in a meaningful sense, which isn't to say you shouldn't vote, to be clear. but Yeah, it's, it's rather that kind of like voting is almost like this instead of seeing it as the thing that happens you know like the final thing where you vote and then you are given the service we should really kind of view it as two things almost like the checking of the the temperature of the nation and seeing from it what work needs to be done you know it should be the starting point of your communal identity and your communal kind of uh, mode of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that so much attention on the vote and elections really overlooks the things that we could be doing in our community to be shaping our ridings and our communities and country. Yeah. And so I guess the kind of uh, the kernel there is something like don't fetishize the vote. Like that story that we were telling earlier on where it's like the vote is your singular moment of civic participation and like this is uh, these elections are the most important things we can be doing to like decide our future. This is like how your voice is heard. Like actually don't buy into that story. Um, voting uh, has to be seen in a larger context of like civic participation in a larger context of uh, uh, a resistance to democratic action and building solidarity. Uh, voting is just something you do one day for 15 minutes and uh, you want to do it defensively um, and you want to think about the interests of yourself but also of the people around you, the people you care about, the people uh, as well, the people who are the most vulnerable and who are going to be endangered by various policies. I I see it as a defensive thing. Um, And I think that when we go to the ballot box, we should see it as one tool in a larger toolbox of the way that we're going to be engaging politically, right? It's hard to break out of it, this it's hard to break out of that fetishization Mm -hmm. because I feel like in order to break out of the fetishization of the vote involves this, this almost like this radical orientation towards our economic system. Yeah. Right. And the way that it individualizes us to precisely like feel, I don't know, like, entitled in a way that we are over and above political parties, trade unions, and religious groups. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is just like this kind of radical individualism, this kind of like libertarian, like in, in it for myself. Yeah. Like in, at the last, in the last analysis, like I'm here, I'm looking out for number one. Mm -hmm. It's kind of attitude. It is hard Just to like break this, out of this cynicism. Yeah. It is cynicism. Conservative party is drinking that shit up, man. They're drinking liters of it. Um, they're swilling down the sewage. But 
I, 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 I like the way you kind of framed it, thinking about getting out of that and like why is the vote fetishized in the first place. Um, and so I think that can kind of shift our conversation a little bit um, into this question of the media and the role that like the media plays in constructing a public, constructing a Canadian public, constructing the issues, constructing um, the role that the public has to play in our political uh, system. So I think that that's kind of an important thing to understand because the media, they feed us this information that we then use to make this like calculus about who we're going to vote for, like how effective it's going to be, all that stuff we were talking about with strategic voting, like yeah. all of that information and the narratives that go into like that form of decision making and the close, very like careful curation of the, the, the moment of voting, like all of that work is being done through media, right? The questions and the debates, like the fra- the talk that we like that the leaders are going to discuss like this is what's important to Canadians right like this idea of Canadians that there is like this thing called the Canadian public that we're all a part of or that like people north of the what is it the 49th parallel or whatever are a part of like (laughs) (laughs) um, right Uh, so there's this very strange kind of role that's being played there and uh, that is essential in creating this political spectacle Mm -hmm. and in our uh, conception of what politics is and what uh, Canadian democracy is about, right? Yeah, like 40 40 seconds uh, to answer these like incredibly big questions is completely fucked up too. But uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's extremely spectacular. You have, yeah, it's extremely, it's divided up into these uh, very specific amounts of time for everybody to speak. Uh, And uh, and, and that already shows you how much the conversation is conditioned and, uh, you know, cut down and sliced up in in the way, you know, it's, it's, there, there can be, no big discussion uh, that uh, like on these in these political debates even mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it's set up in such a way that um, it's not conducive to a more kind of like productive type of conversation yeah. almost to produce a show that we see and then we consume we watch our screen at home and it's like broad- broadcast across this like large scale so that everyone has a chance to like watch people fun- fumble through 40 seconds of like nonsense yeah um, i think um, <laughs> particularly around the question of media i feel like what we really need to demand is uh transparency about principles but also people's self-interests you know like for example if you're talking about big media mainstream media i feel like mm, a lot of viewers and again this kind of comes back to privilege and education access to uh, education um but is are unaware of the way that the profit motive plays into the filtration and the biasing of uh, mm-hmm. of the kind of news coverage around elections and of political messaging. Absolutely, yeah. And I don't want to suggest that bias 
free information is something that is even possible. Possible. I don't think that that's the case, but I think what we can demand, like as I said before, is just to be clear about where uh, your interests lie. Mm-hmm. You know, so the three of us are talking here, and it's pretty kind of transparent. And there's a, there's downsides to that, right? You know, like, <laughs> you know, it's not as easily regulated. You know, like we don't have like advertised adverti- advertisements on here, right? And like our kind of like coverage of the news or the election is going to be entirely different than say, you know, CBC mm-hmm. who has to kind of like, they have senior management and kind of people who are kind of informing kind of institutions or schools or even people that they regularly work with, which just informs the bias mm-hmm. and the approach, right? Yeah. And if you look at the history of CBC, it has, from the beginning, always been about promoting a Canadian national consciousness, right? It's always been a mechanism to take an incredibly large and disparate group of people across an enormous territory and create some kind of commonality out of those people, like generate something that is a, a, a national consciousness, right? Like generate in them a sense of themselves as Canadians, as Canadian subjects, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it it has always been about create, setting up a difference between Canadians and Americans, um, right? Like the Canadian government funds uh, the CBC because uh, and other media outlets because – they need Canadians to have that co- a cohesive identity together with one another that is greater than above and beyond the identity that they share with uh, uh, with Americans, right? Um, so it's always been about promoting that and generating this kind of national consciousness. It's always been about creating a public. And the other kind of like legacy Canadian media, even the private ones, uh, they, they participate in that project as well, you know, like they have a vested interest in creating a Canadian public um, in order to sort of like create certain kinds of revenue streams for themselves in order to like vie for power within their like large scale knowledge economies. Um, so like, yeah, they have their own interests like these these media organizations and they have an interest in generating something like a Canadian public, distilling what uh, the issues that public cares about, right? Like the, they, they want that consciousness to be sort of like, they need it to be defined narrowly in these ways. Well, yeah. And like that's an especially like one of the roles of the commentators that do these recaps of the debates as well. So it's like, oh well, if you didn't you know listen to the debate, well here are the important points. You know, mm-hmm. here are the important events that happened. Yeah. You know, and then they just like distill it even more, and they're creating even more of a portrait. Like mm-hmm. I heard this on uh, a CBC podcast uh, where they were doing a recap of like the face to face interviews. Uh, that they had last week um, between the various party members, or sorry, the various political um, uh, candidates. And in the interview with Justin Trudeau, he, he um, spoke with this uh, guy, uh, this, this young man named uh, Spirit River Striped Wolf uh, from Pecani First Nation. And he's basically telling uh, Trudeau that uh, his 
you know, his policies or his plans weren't uh, enough to address the issues that he and his community were facing, uh, especially um, around like mental health. Yeah, exactly. Especially around mental health. And he was saying, you know, we need radical policy, you know, uh, and then he was talking uh, he was talking to Trudeau and about to list out the things that his community is facing. And then Trudeau kind of just cut him off and started talking at him and just saying like, oh, yeah, you're you're facing this and that. And like you could tell you could even see Spirit's, Spirit's face just like just kind of pissed off. You know, it was it was a disgusting scene. And I was just so outraged. And then in this CBC recap, like uh, the host didn't even acknowledge any of that. She was just saying like, oh, yeah, we don't think that Spirit got the answer that he wanted, but, you know, he was hurt by the the liberal government and, like, that's got, that has an important impact or some shit like this. And I was like... When I, um, again, when I was, when I met with uh, Elizabeth May, one thing that she talked about was uh, kind of like imagining different uh, futures for uh, Canadian media. And... One of the things that comes from this criticism of the CBC, especially from people who want to see the CBC defunded, is that um, the current iteration of the CBC is not the best it could be. You know, and in a way, like I think we kind of forget that there's been so many cuts to kind of like news media, and concurrent to that there's also just been these kind of shifts in journalism since the since the internet became a popular news source for people right so there's been print media has been struggling yeah and more people have been turning to their news feeds for news and information absolutely so i think like it's interesting to think about the ways that uh, kind of news organizations such as CBC, which are kind of like trying to promote this national consciousness, could be improved and modified and innovated in ways to incorporate and employ more people. And I'm going to express myself interest here, but you know, like, you know, bring in more people who from the arts, you know, like have a more diverse kind of like space where, you know, following a debate. You don't just have the talking heads on the news, but you have like, you know, like smaller kind of deliberative spaces online where people can tune into these chat rooms where people are talking about the election and having a reaction, right? So you can have like a plurality of, you know, takes on these political issues, right? Just a thought. Yeah, but also like, have forums for democratic discussion, you know? If democracy is about, like, building a sense of ourselves, like, together as a people, and if, you know, their mandate is to promote this national consciousness, then have spaces where we can kind of work these things out in a longer-form discussion. And... um, you just don't see that at all. And instead, you get this kind of manicured, like very slick version and this intense, there's a privileging of like of poll data and uh, of the narratives that kind of come out of that, uh, like horse racy type of approach to the electoral process. And it's just like all these things are so 
tightly connected, right? Like they're so tightly connected. That's so tightly connected to the first past the post. Because like when you think about it, coming back to like our earlier discussion about like being going to the ballot box alone, the curtain falls behind you, and there you are. You have to make this choice. Everything else that led you up to make that choice, and like everything you're carrying with you in your head, like that came to you through these media sources, right? Like it was curated and manicured by those media sources, and like obviously the political parties and like large corporations and so forth are investing in the way that like that experience is manicured and organized. And if, yeah, and so I guess like you're trying to make this more constructive point, which I like, I like taking things in that, in that direction. It's like, is there some potential here? Is there something, uh, is there some future for this weird kind of accident that is the CBC, which in a way like is a reactionary force like right it's a reaction to the threat of american cultural incursion it's a reaction to the threat of a loss of like a a, a nascent canadian identity um and it, 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 it's a reaction to the threat of like the, those internal fractures whether that's between the provinces whether that's between like uh, people who are coded as white and then like indigenous people or whatever um, wh wherever those kind of fractures appear like the CBC is there to react against that and to produce a kind of broader consciousness and, and also to curate the differences into these like uh into the spheres and the orbits of these uh various parties so you know is there some potential there for that kind of uh organization to serve a different role and to take on a greater responsibility when it comes to fostering democracy you know, I think that those are really good questions to um, be asking ourselves and to also just put out there because obviously none of us work for the CBC or any of these other media outlets, but um, the way that they've taken on their responsibility when it comes to us having democracy um, in this country uh, has has been about yeah like you're saying the profit motive has been about their class interest in a very kind of like harsh way yeah and i think we've seen that from i mean there's the most flagrant examples like national post and uh post media and so forth but i think we've seen that from most of these media outlets like they they're looking out for for their perceived class interest you know yeah i think cbc I think the CBC is a uh, limited capacity right now. And just in terms of just being one channel, you have the news website and stuff where you can tune in and there's a lot more diversity there, but I mean, it's just variations of the same shit right mm -hmm. on the website. Yeah. But the, the limitation is with it in the, specifically in the context of first past the post is that there's this ever present uh, tension between the kind of great man narrative that's going on between party leaders and then mm -hmm. the po the political races that are going on at the level of the ridings, right? So it's like people have to make, in our parliamentary system, people vote for MPs in their riding, right? So 
yeah, tuning into the CBC might give you some insight into some of the broader kind of like uh, macro kind of dynamics between the political parties at the leader level. But it's not going to really inform you about the issues facing your particular community. And I think that it leads a lot of people uh, astray. Yeah. You know, because they're turning in, they're tuning into the news to try to help them make a more informed decision, but they end up just becoming more biased, you know, based on things that have to do with leaders who like speaking from personal experience, uh, you know, there's none, none of the leaders are from like our, like my, my writings, my province, right? You have like Quebec, you know, Jagmeet and May are from BC, Okay, isn't Sheer from Saskatchewan, or is he just? Uh, is Manit- that just where he's riding? No, I think is? he's Manitoba. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, still Eastern yeah. alienation. Yeah, well, it's funny because I, I guess like growing up in Ontario, like I don't feel that as strongly, but I, in this, but I know what you mean, in the sense that, um, yeah, we are. We're alienated from these leaders, and also it, they're the they're the kind of great man theory going on, the great man race between them, like doesn't really reflect back onto our own riding in a meaningful sense. <sighs> yeah. All right. So we're we've been talking for quite some time, and so I wondered if. Um, at this stage and this conversation has really like it's been all over the map you know we've talked about a lot of different issues it's been a ton that's come up and maybe if you're listening to this you're like oh i kind of like wish they hadn't talked so much about that and instead they talked more about this like maybe we brought something up that was interesting to you and if that's the case like you know definitely hit us up on uh, social media or whatever and tell us about that because i'm sure we'd be happy to like talk about this stuff a lot more but uh, maybe we can just kind of do some final thoughts that we would want to leave people with. And uh, then we can wrap up this discussion before we go too much further. So uh, I'll just throw it open to you guys for that. Uh, uh, So yeah, like a big thing for me is um, just like of being very mindful of the red herrings, you know, like in this election, it's the same thing that happened during uh, Stephen Harper's reign. And of course, when I say this, I'm not advocating for wild spending and fiscal irresponsibility. But what the fuck does that even mean, right? <laughs> you know, so, like, and what I'm kind of dancing around is this idea of balancing the budget and fiscal debt. You know, like, or rather, federal debt. It becomes like a big talking point when criticizing. Um, progressive policies, especially around pharmacare, childcare, any sort of universal program gets criticized from the right for being fiscally irresponsible. So you'll see this a lot where people will say, well, we can't really be making these kind of large scale investments in the people until we have a balanced budget. So they say, you know, let's wait 10, five years you know, and then balance the budget, hoping a recession doesn't come. And then at that point, we'll be able to give you the things that 
you need to get by. In the meanwhile, we'll give you, you know, some tax cuts, save a couple hundred bucks, you know, a month or something, you know, you'll get by. And I think that there's just something very, yeah, like frustrating about how persuasive this argument seems to be for a lot of people, because I feel like people don't understand, and I'm not an economist, but the federal debt and the way that debt is accumulated at a national and federal level is entirely different from the way that you and I, you know, like interact with say like student debt or our credit card debt. Mm -hmm. It's entirely different, but I feel like that kind of distinction between the debt of a country and its lending power uh, isn't really clarified by politicians and they kind of just throw it around, Mm -hmm. you know, like without really like elaborating on what it actually means. And they just kind of like, as you've said before, Keegan, they uh, kind of take you to the cliff edge and they insinuate something, but they don't like fully go there and say that like, you know, like, (laughs) sorry, that sounds very dark when I say it like that. (laughs) So yeah, just beware of that because yeah, even in my classes, I hear uh, that criticism. They say they're like, "Oh, well, we can't afford it right now," and I'm like, "Well, what do you mean, we?" Yeah, like, like the the nation is not a household. Like you do not have, you do not produce your own currency. You don't like press money in your basement. You know, like <laughs> your household finances have nothing to do with the way that like a national government operates in terms of finance. Um, I completely agree with your point there, Mike. And uh, I think that especially conservatives, but like liberals do this as well. Like they have this kind of, they have a particular way of talking about economics uh, where it's very obfuscating, but there's this implicit idea that it's like, if you really care about economics, you have to accept these hard truths that we're going to have to make cuts to programs to balance a budget and like everyone's going to have to just like buckle down and really the most effective way to like run an economy is for like big business to make a lot of money and somehow that's good for the national debt or whatever and it's like the, the idea that that's like the core like economic principle and like ideology and that that's just the hard truth that we have to accept is like so fraudulent. And when you really start to pay attention to the way that they use language to get there, you see them flip flop back and forth between this metaphor of like personal household debt and then threats about what national debt means. They, it's just like a cudgel that they use in political debate and uh, – Frankly, like they're using it cynically. Like they know that's not how economies work. Or if they think that's how economies work, then they're deluded, right? So uh, definitely something to watch out for when you get involved with these political conversations. Yeah, and like even yeah. even uh, in the argumentation that that comes out of the mouths of conservatives as well, like the idea that more of a free market and, you know, allowing businesses to, or like trying to prevent them from taking the hit so that they can produce jobs. Like, I'm sorry, but job, job creation isn't like an inherent outcome of like the success of a business, like businesses, you know, especially corporations, you know, like at the end of the day, the, the main aim here is capital. And like, you know, if jobs can be cut, then they will be right. And like, you know, it's just, I don't, I don't know. It, I, I feel like that's a, a big talking point 
on the part of the conservatives. And that's also something to watch out for because businesses, you know, they, you know, they're not actually there to, they aren't like a factory of job creation. Like, yeah, they're not there to give you a good life. Yeah. Brace the free market. You know, like, I mean, like I say that tongue in cheek, you know, it's like conservatives like to say that, you know, they believe in the free market while simultaneously giving out like subsidies and all these tax breaks to try and like, what, like, not control, but try to like play to the advantage of the market. And I feel like for for a party, particularly the conservatives who uh, kind of espouse the values of small government and hands-off government, are very hands-on. And I think that contradiction needs to be exposed a bit more. And it, it's, mm-hmm. I guess it, point, the, yeah. it's important to make the point that it's actually not only the conservatives who do this, like it's also the liberals. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because that is what, that's liberalism. Like that's the model, you know, and it, yeah. they're not just hypocrites or something when they like say one thing and do the other, like, no, like that's an intentional part of the ideology. Right. And we were talking about this mm-hmm. kind of pandering that people will do. And I, and we were talking about, um, the, uh, I think just this kind of collective, like felt sense, this like why very widespread ideology that they're just like, are these hard truths of economics that they're constantly playing to again and again and again. And like, um, yeah. A lot of those are not true. Like a lot of those are false and like are mis- just misrepresentations of the way that um, economies work. So they're just going to play to those things in order to attain their goals. And like they fully know that like they're using it cynically. Like they know it's not real and they just don't give a shit. So but like, I mean both liberals and conservatives will do this. And like I mean uh, Green and NDP parties like obviously haven't had uh, power in the same way. So we can't. Um, say the same thing about them, but yeah, we can't rule it out. We, can't, we certainly can't rule it out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, so that's kind of a good round of like final thoughts, like almost lighting around, or right? it's like look out for the for the snares of this economic ideology, which like you're gonna hear. We did hear it in the debates, and uh, cool. So I think we're gonna wrap it there, and. Uh, We've been talking for about two hours now, and so there's a lot of material here. So you've been, uh, if you've stuck with us this far, like thanks for sticking it out. Uh, this has been your episode of the Poplar Tapes, and I hope you guys enjoyed it and that it helps you orient yourself towards this upcoming Canadian election. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. All right. And that's it for the Poplar Tapes. If you uh, like what you heard, feel free to share it with your friends or on social media. Uh, Thanks to Keegan Irish and Mike Fong for their great conversation. I'm Alex Bose. Editing for this episode was done by Dan Bose and post-production was done by Jacob Irish. A huge thank you to both of them for all their hard work and thank you to the listeners for your support. 